Hey, welcome back to the Adventures in Advising podcast. My name is Matt Markin, and we are at episode 66. On today's episode, you'll hear interviews with Michael Bjorkia from Utah State University and Dr. Sean Ryan from Chico State and Dr. Jenny Bloom from Florida Atlantic University guest hosts. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. It's now time for episode 66. Welcome back to the podcast. If you can believe it, we're celebrating 29,000 downloads of this podcast. This is incredible. And of course, we wouldn't be here without you listening in and supporting Adventures in Advising. So thank you so much. If you're listening in the first week of September, just a reminder that if you're going to be attending the Nakata Annual Conference in October, the registration deadline before prices go up is September 8th. And this is for both in-person and virtual attendees. And also hotels are filling up, so definitely get your hotel reservation in as soon as possible. And speaking of the conference, did you know that the Portland Conference will have a conference pin? So for those that know me, I love pins, especially academic advising pins. And I'm happy to say that I got to work on this pin with some amazing NACAD Executive Office members, Dr. Melinda Anderson, Farrah Turner, Dana Bneri, and Michelle Holliday. The pin's only $8, and it connects with the conference theme of building bridges. Uh, Proceeds actually go to fund the first-ever art exhibition that will be at the conference. So pretty cool things happening. Orders are being accepted online through the Nakata store by September 30th. Orders can either be shipped or you can order and then pick up the pin at the Portland conference. I think it's a nice pin and it goes full circle back to the conference. And I'll also include the link to the Nakata store in the show notes. So let's jump into our first interview. And we have Dr. Jenny Bloom back on the podcast, this time as guest host, interviewing Michael Bjorkia. Here we go. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to come back in this role as interviewer. And I am delighted that my friend Michael Bjorkia from Utah State University agreed to do this podcast with me. So uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read Michael's um, biography, and then we're going to get into the questions. So Michael Bjorkia is the Executive Director of the Office of University Advising and Exploratory Advising at Utah State University. As Executive Director, she serves as a liaison between academic advising and campus partners, ensuring advisors have the resources they need to support students' growth as learners and citizen scholars. She leads initiatives centered in student potential to increase persistence and degree completion. Prior to her current role, she served as director of the Academic Service Center for the Quinney College of Natural Resources. Michael used the appreciative advising framework to help students discover their strengths and connect them with academic programs to help them move toward their dreams, improving retention and completion rates in the college. Michael serves on Nakata's Communities Division as chair of the Appreciative Advising Community. She has served on the Utah Advising Association and Nakata Region 10 Steering Committees. She received the Utah State University Advisor of the Year Award in 2014 and the Nakata Professional Advisor Certificate of Merit 
primary role award in 2015. Michael has earned both her bachelor's and her master's degrees from Utah State and is currently pursuing her PhD at Utah State in instructional technology and learning sciences. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, Jenny, for that reading. And yeah, I'm so grateful to be here with you. I am absolutely thrilled to have this interview opportunity to interview you because I so admire the important work that you do each and every day at Utah State. So even though I just read your bio, can you kind of fill in some of the missing pieces in terms of your journey to a career as an academic advising administrator at Utah State? Well, it's a good question. And I think every good thing that I've had has sort of come from a down moment. Um, I I worked in res- residential treatment for women and girls with eating disorders while I was getting my bachelor's degree. And I maxed out at what I could do there. And my boss encouraged me to think about a master's degree. And I thought, wow, we could be proactive maybe about some of these issues. We could support families, maybe through the school system. So I became a school counselor. And then I spent two hours in the eighth grade and realized that that wouldn't be a sustainable career for me. I needed a two-hour nap when I got home. And it could be anything. Someone could spend two hours in academic advising and realize this maybe wasn't the thing for them. But that transition or that shift in recognizing where my strengths lied allowed me to really put my focus into academic advising. I was working as a staff assistant in the Quinney College of Natural Resources. And I talked to my supervisor there and said, this is actually working with adults um, is where I want to be. And I recognized immediately just working as a staff assistant, the huge impact that that advisor had. And I wanted to, to be that too. So I think those down moments have really helped me shift in realizing or helping me clarify and define what my own dreams and goals are. I love that, that we have that in common, that we tried something and although we thought this is what we were going to do, it isn't what we ended up pursuing and that that's okay, right? So often we see this with students who are exploring and they feel like they're a failure if they tried something and they didn't enjoy it. So can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of how we can reframe that? I just believe so strongly in human potential. And because I believe in that for others, I think that allows me to believe in myself. So it's not, I don't always start with me really having a strong belief in myself, but I can in my work with students, I see so much potential in them that it must be true for me too. And I think that's something that fuels me is, especially in my daily work here in advising, is that my students deserve someone who shows up fully for them, someone who's self-reflective in their own practice, someone who's um, striving to get better at the practice, trying to stay up to date with trends. Um, And maybe even more importantly, someone who thinks about building relationships across campus as a strategy for student success. And I'm not perfect at it. And this is another thing where I always have to go back and rethink my the way that I'm doing things or say sorry when I've made a mistake. I think that that self-reflection or when I encounter a barrier allows me to refine where I'm going. And I think for my own life makes me better, allows me to have some stories to share with my students. I think that's one of your strengths, Michael, mm-hmm. is your willingness to to share your own stories and some of the stumbles that you've had along the way and just your authenticity in sharing and courage in sharing those stories is so powerful, which leads me to my next question, which is one of my favorite 
phrases that emerged during the pandemic was from your story about the importance of putting people before process. Can you take us back to the beginning of the pandemic and tell us about the origin story of the people before process uh, phrase? Yes. And after, I think I'd like to talk about the pandemic part, but then I also want to talk about your influence on me now that I have that phrase um, back when we met in 2016. So my, I have a colleague, um, Donna Crow, who was the executive director of our career services. And we work on the same team. We reported through the same supervisor. And I was so confused about what to do when we were shifting to remote learning and I was feeling really overwhelmed and I felt a lot of pressure. I, I was a director, um, but I'm also just a human being. I don't have all of the answers, <laughs> but I know for me in times of stress or when I don't know what to do, I often just go to a checklist and just start writing things down and ticking them off. And in that overwhelm, I approached Donna as a friend and a mentor. And she said, this checklist is really nice, but if you put people before process and let that guide everything you do, that's how you know, that's where you'll find success. And the same, I, I'm finding this pattern in myself when I became director, I'm the founding director of our office. We'd never had any centralized, official centralized advising system. We had some folks that were par- providing some great training and development for advisors, but it was never, you know, a core part of what they did. And so when USU created university advising in 2015 and I became the founding director I also had a big old checklist of best practices. I'd been in the literature. I'd written down all of the things that we needed to do, but without the relationship across campus and without putting people first, you really don't often achieve what you were trying to achieve with your checklist. And your checklist might not even be aligned with the needs of the people you're trying to serve. I believe strongly in data and literature, and I like to have that be a guide, but without the people being at the center, then what are we actually accomplishing? So I've had several of these people before process learning moments. And I, I so wish I would be such an effective leader if I could continue to remember to do this in everything that I do. It's often again, whoops, we've made a mistake there, or I went too far into process or checklists or telling people what to do rather than actually putting those people first. But um, having that mantra or that language helps me to bounce back, I think more quickly maybe than I would have if I was just continuing to work on a checklist. Yeah. And I think it's often, it's not one or the other, right? Um, But that when push comes to shove and if things aren't going well, that I feel like that people before process is always, has been such an important way for me to recenter, reframe what's happening and move forward. And so Checklists are helpful, yes, but I think your question about what do checklists mean if you don't have those relationships built. And so tell us about this this office that you've, you know, essentially launched at at Utah State that is student-centered and focused on meeting the needs of students as well as meeting the needs of the academic advisors. I know that you've really had an impact in terms of just the culture of academic advising at Utah State. So can you kind of lead us through the how you approach changing the culture at Utah State? Yeah, Um And again, there's a lot of mistakes in the story um, and a lot of opportunities for me to shift and reframe. So while I'm so incredibly proud of the people that we work with and the work that we've accomplished together, 
Um, we've all had to extend a lot of grace to each other. We've had to have a lot of difficult, challenging conversations. I've had to have a lot of um, mind shifts. And I've also had to com communicate with my upline um, all the things that we've been experiencing so that we can have consistency throughout our system. So we started in 2015, and my supervisor sent a survey to everyone who had academic advisor in their title at USU. And this included some folks in athletics and honors and international students and scholars. And all throughout our system, we had folks that were um, academic advisors. And we just surveyed them. them. And my um, boss is Janet Anderson, and she was a vice provost at the time. She's a great survey writer. Um, she asked really, really great questions. So she had some quantitative and qualitative questions, and we compiled the data and we realized a few key things that we needed to make progress on. And the first one was to, to continue the work of the people who had been doing that community building to continue that even more intentionally. And so through those survey results, we also realized that our campus didn't have a definition of what academic advising was. And so anyone could be an advisor um, even if they weren't working for a college or a department, anyone could be an academic advisor. And um, for us, it was really important for us to define what an academic advisor at Utah State University is, what they do, what they value. And we utilized NACADA core competencies. We used standards from the council, um, CAST standards. Let me think about what that is. Council for Advancement of Standards in Higher Education for Advising Programs. Um, and we did really important intentional work in community, we did grassroots work um, that was that was advisor up to administration, and then we had some priorities that our administrators had that we um, developed communities and committees to to handle. But I think the thing that I realized right away is that our advisors on our campus weren't celebrated enough, and I'm still hearing this a lot in in my advising circles that advisors, a lot of us are telling advisors, people in my position, or provosts or deans or vice presidents understand the important role that an advisor plays in student success, but they think we can do everything. And without having a conversation about the scope of the work of an advisor, um, I think we put our advisors at a big disadvantage by, we are superheroes, but we're also human um, and we can't do everything. And so those early conversations with administrators about I mean, we had a conference and we did sticky notes. What do advisors know, do, and value? There were 1,300 different things that academic advisors at Utah State University were doing. And so wow. we were able to communicate with deans and directors that advisors are amazing, but we can't be doing everything. Um, how can we work more intentionally with you all to make sure that advisors have the capacity to serve students in the way they need to be served? Wow, that's that's so important to to narrow down exactly what the role of the advisor is. And um, I'm so glad that you took that, that time and that opportunity to, to do that and to um, also educate the administrators about all of the responsibilities that uh, academic advisors were, were being charged with carrying out. So you've got this incredible team of academic advisors and, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you approach supporting and training them. Yeah. So many of us, I think, are thinking about this right now with, with the turnover. We're recording this podcast in August 2022. Um, there's been a lot of folks leaving higher education altogether. Um, 
we've had at my institution some retirements. And so advisors are getting promoted, which is awesome for us to have awesome opportunities to be promoted. But we've got a lot of new folks now. And we've really had to turn training and development on its head. And it's something here at USU that that we're, we're working intentionally on. But what I'm really proud of, um, and it, this is in partnership with you, Jenny, is the way that we've changed the way that our campus thinks about academic advising from being, and I know this is just the age old question about advising, that we just do schedules. Um, and we have, through our advisor development training and really great communication through our whole advising system, we've realized that advisors play an important role in students' sense of academic belonging, that we help students with the process of meaning-making, that we help them connect a plan with purpose and process. Um, and the competencies that are needed for that are maybe are, are more complex than just interpreting a catalog or interpreting a policy when we're thinking about how do we understand who our students are and what their needs are. I hate stories of students that say, I went to see my advisor and they didn't help me at all. And I hate that story because I know the person on the other side of the desk, the advisor is incredibly dedicated to helping their student. And so by utilizing appreciative advising, we've been able to, to increase students' perception of advisors that we've increased um, 10% students feeling like their advisor actually cares about them. So we've made that a core competency. We've made the relational aspect of academic advising central. We can, if you can Google it, if it's a process that we can Google, that's great. And we will spend time doing that. But we spent a lot of time in our advisor development and training, thinking about and practicing relationship building and the practices that will allow us, um, that will allow our students to actually see us as an important resource, an important person on their student success path. So I want to circle back. You had mentioned earlier that one of the first things that you did was define what academic advising is at Utah State. Can you um, share what, with us the, the definition of academic advising that your community came uh, established at that point? Yeah, we're, uh, we have, uh, I'm backing up a little bit. Um, all of us that serve students, from career design, from orientation, from athletics, from our quick stop, from every from every every part of our institution, um, you don't have to be an advisor to have huge impact on students. A couple of weeks ago, I was in line for a five dollar foot long in the subway line, and the student that was working at Subway was making a great referral. They had just started a great conversation and they made a great referral to a campus resource. And that is all of us. And um, we have a vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion, Dr. Jane Rungu, and she provided our keynote address at our advising conference last week. And she said, student success is 100% of all of our responsibility, but it's not 100% on any one person. It's 100% of all of us. And so in the beginning here at Utah State, as we were defining advising, there was a little bit of tension as, as we were kind of pulling apart a, a community. We were saying people that are academic advisors that have these specific responsibilities, they are people who are responsible for signing off on graduation applications or engaging in major exploration. And so those are the roles that are, that are academic advisors, and they have these specific responsibilities. 
And from there, we're building out an, a success coordinating or success coaching um, way of thinking about oh, everyone that that provides services to students. But when we started this work, we knew we had to tighten up the scope a little. And that's how we defined an academic advisor as someone that signs a graduation application or someone who helps student whose responsibility it is to help with the major exploration process. So a lot of our campus community comes to our advisor development and training activities. And actually through that, and I think this is a, I have to pat myself on the back for some self-advocacy and pat my boss on the back too for actually listening to me. Um, when you build something that's meaningful or that people see value in, they want to be there. And we saw that on our campus that we were, it's not just me doing this. Our community that was providing these awesome professional development events was being recognized across our campus. So we combined um, a few groups, our career design center, student retention and completion, orientation and transfer services and our statewide campuses. And we developed something we call the Student Achievement Collaborative. And my self-advocacy is I'm just one person providing services to this one group, to academic advisors. And while other folks will benefit from having our content, it's not designed for them. So can we imagine what it would look like if we provided excellent professional development to the people who need it most so we can support all of USU? So we developed a new series with all of us called Front and Center. It's not just me developing content. We do all of this in community. And now we have the needs of the people who need this um, professional development. We have people at the table to deliver rich experiences for everyone that needs it. So we developed a series front and center for all um, student-facing professionals, which means our advisors can contribute and to, can go to those. And now I have my own um, professional development for academic advisors. So there's two tracks, but they all support one another. Um, and I've noticed just with my own job satisfaction that sometimes I try to deliver something that's outside of my scope, like providing professional development for all student-facing professionals. I don't know their competencies. I don't know their outcomes. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. And if I was trying to do that at the best way possible, that would be a lot for me to learn. And that would take me away from the core responsibility that I have. And I think one thing that I'm so grateful for is my boss who pays attention when I say, this is the need that I've noticed. We have a lot of people that are attending advising professional development events, but I'm not sure it's meeting their needs because we're delivering content for academic advisors. But there are things that all of us can share. So what would it look like to provide something that actually meets the needs of our community? And my boss, Janet, took that on and she she listened to me when I said this is what we need and she brought the right people together so we could make that happen. I know Janet has been so supportive. You both you know, professionally and personally over the years, and she serves at, as the vice provost. Uh, what have you most appreciated about having Janet as your supervisor? And I'm going to ask a, a, a second part to that. What's, what's the most important thing that you've learned from working mm -hmm. with her? I talk a lot about appreciative advising. And Jenny, obviously, this is your wheelhouse too. So maybe you could talk about this a little as well. But sometimes people misinterpret it as just being nice to people. And when we think about concepts like challenge and support or don't settle concepts, um, it actually requires us to provide feedback. My boss, Janet, is the most appreciative administrator that I've met. She provides feedback and she always says, soften the tone, not the message. And I work with people who don't have the luxury of having a boss who guides them and directs them. 
I could be working. I, I know people who work on projects and they're doing these amazing things, but their boss wants them to be doing this, but they never told them that. So they're just working their guts out, trying to accomplish this thing over here, but it's not what their boss wanted and it wasn't communicated. And Janet is so incredible about helping me stay on track with, with, with my goals. And this is an embarrassing story, but I have to tell it here. Um, we were, I was a new administrator. We were in a meeting with, with a dean and an associate dean. And I had a mission I was trying to accomplish. I was trying to get us to utilize one of our new, I was trying to get the institution to utilize one of our new tools. And the dean didn't quite understand what we were accomplishing with that tool. And I cut the dean right off. Like, that's not really true. I said something like that. Like, how embarrassing that I did that. And my boss just gave me a little like hand signal, like, oh, like no more interrupting in this meeting. And I understood totally what she was saying. But being someone who cares about you enough to help you to be a person that shows up professionally. I mean, I should never cut anyone off, um, Dean or anyone else, like cutting off is it's rude to do. Um, but after the meeting, we debriefed and she said, you know, cutting someone off isn't a way that you build trust. People won't think you're competent if they if if you're not thinking about building trust and she does that every day that she cares about me enough and she cares about my growth enough that she provides me the feedback even when it's hard. It's priceless, isn't it? Being it's a gift. To, to, to receive that feedback uh, because you know that Janet is giving that feedback to you with nothing but love and respect for you. And, and she wants you to be successful. Uh, and, and I always, you know, a, this is one thing that I really appreciate about Janet. She's not doing that so that you do just do better work. She's doing that because she sees you and she believes in you and what a gift that is. I don't take that for granted. And I really try to embody that in my own practice as an administrator, but I can't tell you how hard it is to deliver feedback. It's Especially when people, when I know everyone is being as amazing as they possibly can. And so if something doesn't hit the mark or if it's not quite the direction that we're going, I hate nothing more than to redirect my amazing team. And I know that it's not fun for Janet either to, you know, have to tell me in the middle of a meeting to stop cutting people off. That's not really fun to do. And um, I, I guess courage is the only word that I can think of right now. Like it really takes courage to be an administrator who cares about the growth of the people on your team. And I'm so lucky to be able to have that modeled for me. So I have some of the words that it becomes muscle memory for me. So I can say things like, Jenny, I know how amazing you are and how committed you are to the work that we're doing. There's one thing, there's one adjustment I want to make to whatever the thing is. What do you think about that? I have all of those words. I could say 40 of those one-liners because I hear them and mm. I'm incredibly great. I think that's also the most important thing is that I work in an environment where um, appreciative administration is modeled, where people care about building trusting relationships, that we say that we're sorry, uh, that we make space for that important feedback, that we celebrate the successes of everyone on the team, and we take intentional time to do that. I'm, I am so grateful to be working in that type of an environment. Which is so important because then the advisors 
are seeing how Janet interacts with you. They're getting to witness how you interact with them and holding them to high standards, yet doing it in a way that, again, is done with with respect and is not judgmental is that's what it's all about because advisors are having to do that with their students too. So what a blessing that they have that experience watching uh, and interacting with, with both of you. All right. So now I want to kind of take a different path and, and I'd like to, to have you talk to us a little bit about your leadership journey within Nakata. Hmm. It was an accidental journey. One of the things that I most deeply value about Nakata, while I love all of the content that we have access to, I love the clearinghouse. I love the journal. Um, It's the people for me. And I think the first thing that I did was volunteer to read award, um, award nominations or submissions for Region 10. And um, the chairperson at that time, I think, was Brandon Loudon, and he invited me to help on the steering committee next. I really, I was really dedicated to that feedback. I, I'm sure that I provided. I, I'm sure I accidentally overachieved, not knowing exactly what was expected. But I think I provided good feedback for him to make a good decision as the chair, and then he invited me to join the awards committee, and I was able to join him at the global level as well on awards. I also love to read proposals because it helps me quickly see what the trends are in higher ed. And so I've done that and in advising. So I've done that um, a few times. It's helped me tighten up the way that I submit my proposals. Not everything I've submitted has been accepted and I'm not actually that great at submitting these proposals. And so the opportunity to get better through seeing what excellence actually looks like was also a gift. Um, And then there was an opening for the the appreciative advising community chair. And it's um, these conversations with my colleagues I knew I wanted to to engage in and thought this might be a, a great place for me to volunteer. And so I ran as uh, the chairperson for the appreciative advising community, and I'm serving now as chair through 2023. Can you talk to us about some of the initiatives that you've undertaken as chair? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast. Yeah, I first have to say that I don't really, I didn't really know beans from donuts about what I was getting myself into. I read on the, I read on the website what it was um, and it was a really great and accurate description, but I truly had no idea what I was doing. So I really relied on the folks that had been um, steering committee members to guide me and teach me what I needed to be doing. And again, that's a gift too. I think So many of us are in leadership. People are looking to you and think that you have the answers. And I, I honestly don't like I'm, I've reframed what I think about a leader. It's a person who can ask great questions and can build, 
build communities. That's what a great leader does. They don't have all of the answers. And so I utilized the skills that I've learned here as an administrator and took those into my role as a chairperson. So we decided uh, right away that we wanted to survey our, our community, our appreciative advising community. And we wanted to understand, and again, it's a people before process approach. What do they need from us as a community? What are they expecting? Um, can we deliver on what they expect? Do we need to realign what their expectations are? And we found that there were some themes in what they needed from us um, last year. So after annual, we, we conducted our survey. We looked at some of the themes that our, that our community members needed, and then we delivered some coffee chats based on what our teams needed. And they were awesome. We've had so many amazing steering committee members share their practices. I was just doing a survey today talking about leadership in Nakata and what I what I get out of it. And I have to tell you that my interactions with our appreciative advising community are so inspiring that I get I can just get stuck in the way that I do things, the way that things are done at USU. I just don't have, I don't, I'm not always inspired or I can't always come up with my own vision or my own motivation. And just these coffee chats and hearing, just taking notes on the quotes that people say or their one-liners inspire me, get my synapses firing, help me think about things in a new way. So while I hope that I've contributed something as a leader, I think that I've gotten maybe even a lot more out of it than I've given. I love a thread that has gone throughout this interview. And of course, I've seen you in, in action in all kinds of different settings is this co-creation that we talk about in the design phase of appreciative advising and appreciative administration. And I think you're just so really good at bringing people to the table, but not just bringing them to the table, but creating a space where people feel comfortable sharing with you uh, their their ideas and their feedback. And I just want to highlight that uh, that that co-creation piece because I think you do that with a lot of intentionality in everything that you do. Thanks. I think there's also so many of us, and even I'm just thinking about technology right now. There are 90 bajillion different platforms for scheduling an appointment. There are 90 bajillion platforms for doing anything right now in advising. And as we make decisions about what it is that we want, that co-creation to me is so important, even if we don't always end up being able to deliver what every single person around the table wants. Having intentionality and being able to dis to explain what our choices were when we had to make a choice that, that we didn't have unanimous um, support for something, just being able to, the co-creation allows me to be able to explain why it is we, we did what it, what we had to do, even if it wasn't perfect for everyone. So I really value that co-creation process, but it's, um, I think it would be stupid to think that by co-creating, we can always deliver on every need that every person has. And I think that's something that I've had to sit with, like, and, and think about a lot is how can we create space for people to bring those ideas? And also as we make decisions as community, knowing that we're not always able to deliver every single thing that every person wants. Is this, I don't know, Jenny, have you had experiences like that as a leader where even in co-creation, everybody might not always get what they wanted or needed? 
Well, I don't think that co-creation necessarily means consensus. Hmm. I, I think co-creation means exactly what you just said, that you're able to articulate the why behind the decision yeah. that you've made because you've listened carefully to what people have said and you acknowledge, you know, this person made this really good point and yet there's also this other piece of information that is uh, is the reason behind why we're making this decision to move forward with this other option. At least people know that they've been heard and that you've taken yeah. into account their feedback. And I feel like that is so, so key. So yeah, co-creation does not equal consensus, but it does equal that you have to be able to listen very carefully and be able to um, make a, a, a sound decision. It, again, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but make that decision and be able to articulate the why behind the decision. But that takes time. That, yep. And, but it's time well spent. I think this is also maybe selfish for me, but I spend more time here at work than with my family or my chosen family, my partner. I'm here. I spend more time here then I do bird watching, knitting, doing family history, all of the things that I would do in my free time. And I have to make this a place that I want to be. And no one is going to do that for me. No one knows what I want out of a workplace. It's something like I have to create the type of work environment that I want to be a part of. And that means co-creation. That means even in conflict, being in community, um, I have to work I have to, we have to work with these same people every single day. And so burning bridges isn't an option. It's not an option. And, and that is job satisfaction for me. I can't work in a place. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I love um, the, the co-creation piece along with uh, what I think you were just talking about is what Jim Collins talks about, right? Mm -hmm. This pocket of greatness. Like you can't rely on somebody else. Janet can't create for you the, the workspace. Like you have to take that, that responsibility and opportunity that you have to create the kind of workspace that you want to come in and work in every single day. That's, that's you. And uh, I think we, all of us have that responsibility. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. And what about, like, how, how does that reflect for our students? If I, got, if I have advisors here that are drained or that aren't heard or... If, if we aren't engaging in co-creation, how can an advisor authentically talk about what a great place Utah State University is to a student if they're not feeling that themselves? 
Truth, truth. So I'm going to segue because one of the things that I love most about you is that you have such fun hobbies. So family <laughs> history, bird, birding, gardening, canning, knitting, and more. What role do your hobbies play in your life? Hmm. I've always had a really rich inner life. Um and I think it's because I demand joy from my life. Yeah, I I expect that I'm going to find joy in my life. And I started, my parents got divorced when I was 30, 35, in my early 30s. And I found bird watching to just be something that allowed me to be doing something that was productive, that allowed me to be outside. It gave me a task to do. And I, it was so incredibly healing for me um, just to be outside. It sounds stupid maybe, but I swear to you, it really was healing for me being outside. I didn't have to think about anything. I didn't have to think about my work or the experiences that I was having um, with my parents' divorce. It was just me being outside with these birds. It was wonderful. I made a goal. I have a a best friend that lives in Australia and we made a goal together to try to take pictures of 100 birds, her in Australia, me here in Utah. And then we shared those photos. It was just such a great um, exercise for us. And I got to learn a lot about the birds of Australia and she got to see our birds here in Utah. And I've just carried that forward. It's been just birding has been a great way for me to, to shut off, to be outside, to do something productive. Um, now I am in, uh, an Audubon Society that we have here. I'm the secretary or I've been the secretary. I'm heading out. I was a board member um, finishing up my term. And you should see some of these incredible birders. They can bird by sound. And that's what I want to get to. When I go out with them, I'm tracking on my app. And then by the, we get to the end and they're like, I saw 75 birds. I'm like, I got 16. Can we just tick out like where we saw those? Because I must have, I thought we were on the same trip, but we are not on the same trip. <laughs> I love it. And I love that you use the word joy. Yeah. You deserve joy in your life and that you intentionally seek out these joy filled activities uh, simply because they bring you joy. Yep. I demand it for myself. And again, I can't count on anyone else. Who's going to do that for me? I cannot count on anyone else but myself to do that. So my outside of work, work is a hobby for me. I love my work. I find a lot of joy and purpose in my work, but I find I'm better at my work if I also make space for me to grow in other areas. So I make, I'm knitting a sweater right now. I, like you mentioned, I have a garden. My grandma was, and I come from Utah. We have a lot of pioneers here. A lot of folks have been preserving food. Um, so I have just a rich history of food preservation and, um, I'm trying to carry that forward for my family. I love eating my tomatoes and chili in the winter that I grew for myself. So that brings joy into my life. My garden brings joy into my life through the winter. So I do try to, I do hold myself accountable to try to bring joy to my own life. I think, I think that's so important. Uh, a fun fact, when I started early on, right after in 2002, when I uh, co-authored the article, Incorporating Appreciative Inquiry into Academic Advising, that became Appreciative Advising, the first presentations that I did based on that article, I titled The Joy of Advising. 
Yeah. And so I, in fact, on my computer where I, you know, keep all of my PowerPoints, the folder that I have that has all of my appreciative advising presentations is titled The Joy of Advising because that's where I started. And so I love that. Like you can, we can have joy at work. And like, like you just said, we can also have joy outside of work that can bring even more joy into our work. It's, it's not an either or, it can be an and, and they can be symbiotic. I had no idea that joy was kind of a guiding phrase for you. How does that show up? Like, how does joy show up maybe in your work and your personal life? I, I agree with you that joy is really important. Um, life is short. And uh, I love that you said that you demand joy in your life. I, I, I join you in that. Like, if I'm going to do something, I want to have joy in my life. And I don't want work to be something that is not joyous. And so I think it is about, as you said earlier, about creating the space that you want to work in. Well, I want to work in a joyous environment. I want to do work that brings joy. Does it bring joy every single moment of every single day? Of course not. But I want it to be a foundational and important part. And I think it's also can be an indicator of when it's time to leave someplace mm-hmm. is when the joy is uh, minimal. And I, I think I deserve better. And I uh, have made moves in my career based on uh, that it wasn't bringing, bringing joy. And so uh, I think it's all, it's all it's, it's really an important discussion that we often don't talk about in, uh, in our work lives, that you can have joy at work. And it's really important to, to uh, embrace joy outside of work and to pursue activities that do bring you joy. So I want to now shift because you have just recently started in the PhD program in instructional technology and learning sciences. Uh, First of all, how's that going so far? And what's the most important thing that you've learned about yourself to date in this doctoral journey, which there's still many, many steps left to come, but what have you learned about yourself so far? Well, the first thing is that I keep calling it interior design. <laughs> <laughs> Same difference, instructional technology. Uh, it's it's interior. I, I was taking a class on um, Canvas, which is a learning management system. And someone asked me what class, what my programming classes were. And I said, I'm interior design. And I'm taking a class on how to make things in Canvas. And I'm like, that almost makes sense. Um, so instructional technology. So the first thing I'm learning is how to say my the name of my program. Instructional <laughs> technology. Um, I'm learning sciences. Um, one of the challenges that I'm facing is being able to see so clearly where I'm going and recognizing how so how very far I have to go, and that can feel a little bit daunting. Like I can see the dream. I can feel where I'm going. I have, I mean, I know that that will change a little as I go, but I can feel, I have vision for where I'm heading and I can just see how so very far I am from where I'm going. Um, I'm in research methods, 6.5 out of 10 on assignment. I'm like, I'll never, how am I going to make it in this program? I can't even get 10 out of 10 
it's 6.5 out of 10, like a, overcoming that or thinking, being able to navigate. And again, this is just like my boss, the people in my program actually care about my success, that they really are trying to get me. If I was a 10 out of 10 student, then I wouldn't even be in the program and they would have given, given me a PhD already. I'm here to learn. And being able to apply directly to my work, the things that I'm learning in my program has been such a gift. My I was just in a one-to-one -one meeting with my boss today and I was sharing with her um, a literature review that I had done. And she said, I think this is important to share with everyone. You're doing the work anyway. Would you be willing to share that? And so even though, and I guess especially that I don't have the answers, um, my work community is contributing to my growth too. And I didn't expect that. But again, I guess because I have a great boss who really wants me to grow and wants me to be able to share what I'm learning with others. I'm, I have opportunities to continue to, to grow there. So I think those are my most important things. First is learning how to, how to say the program name. And the second one is being able to navigate um, or being able to apply what I'm learning directly and recognizing that I know where I'm going and I don't have to be there today. That's why I'm doing this. It, it's called a journey for a reason, right? Yep. Um, and I, the, the reflective question I'd love to plant in your head is, you know, how can you be intentional about infusing joy through every phase of this, this journey? Um, and that it isn't just about the end and yep. the final product. It's, really is about who you become in the process. And if you demand joy in your work, it would seem like you would demand joy in this doctoral process. You know, and I'm finding that even with this research methods class that I know that my joy comes from community. So my professor has been meeting with me weekly, like early on when I'm when early in the class this summer, when I realized I'm not going to be able to do this by myself, I actually, I do need support in order for me to, to learn what I need to be learning. And my instructor has been so incredibly generous. We've had 30 minute meetings every week. That's been my joy where I can make sense of the materials in community, even if that community is just me and my teacher. Um, and the product, my, my final product is a research prospectus. And wow, it sure looks a lot different being able to do that. And the product is very different in community with my professor than what it would have looked like by myself. I think that's where, that's a trend for me my whole life is that if I can just find community, then I can find, I can get through research methods or anything else. Indeed. Uh, we can do hard things, as Glennon Doyle says, right? It's not I can do hard things. It's we can do hard things and uh, community. And well, and I'll hearken back to where we started. You know, appreciative advising is all about the relationships that the joy is in the relationships. And you're seeing that at work. And now you've already learned that so early on in this doctoral process is the joy really is in the relationships. I, I'm finding um, even coming out of, you know, our, 
our remote period that we've just come out of, I've changed in ways like my interactions are a little more awkward still. And I've just been changed in ways that I'm still learning about myself. And I think that's something that I'm continuing to refine or to be aware of is how I can intentionally show up for myself and intentionally show up with others and even navigating some of the awkwardness that I'm experiencing being in bigger groups now, or like, I'm, I think I'm not as funny as I was before. I don't have as many jokes or the, my social interactions aren't as smooth as, as they were before. Um, and so just, yeah, being intentional about that community, even if it is a little awkward, is going to be important for me this upcoming year. So, Michael, I asked my team this morning, what if you had the opportunity to interview Michael Bjorkia, what question would you ask? And in fact, you've already answered a couple of them. But Ashley asked this question. I think it's a really good one. If you had the power to change one thing about higher education the way it is today, what, what would that be? Hmm. That's a very good question. Today at Utah State, we have a conference going on called Small Satellite, and it's all of these really amazing people that are doing work in space. And I was walking behind someone, which was, they were talking about correlations. You know, I'm in research methods. I'm listening up to all of these smart people that are on campus. I better mm-hmm. follow them for a couple more feet. Um, but I do wish that we had less focus on information and more focus on people. You know, at, at USU, we have a citizen school. You know, what will what will a Aggie look like when they graduate? What will they, how will they, how will they contribute to community or, or how will they be citizen, better citizens of the world? And I think I wish that, that that meaning making, the process of becoming a learner, uh, we talk a lot about that. Dr. Matt Sanders and Dr. Harrison Kleiner at Utah State talk a lot about this, the habits of mind that we develop as learners, um, the ways that we become learners. And it doesn't mean getting 10 out of 10 on everything. Um, It means the experience that I've just had with my faculty member that I'm developing a habit of mind that when I'm not meeting expectations that I go somewhere to get help so that I can. Mm. Um, I wish we talked about that more. I wish we we created that type of space. for that to be more central to the educational experience, the habits of mind, the becoming a learner. And I guess maybe it's not even less on information. I just wish we emphasize that more. I agree. I agree. Uh, this lifelong learning is, it's what it's all about, right? Um, that I, I love that about working in higher education is that we have all these opportunities to learn from so many amazing people and maybe first and foremost would be our students that we have this opportunity to learn from. So Michael, before we wrap up, I would love to hand you the microphone to share any last thoughts with our adventures and advising friends. Well, I think first, Jenny, thank you for just being such a great mentor to me. When I started this work as the founding director of this office, I actually thought it was a checklist and I was not making friends fast. And I couldn't figure out how people couldn't see that we have this list of high impact practices. We have a list of practices in advising that make a difference. Why can't we all just get on the same page and actually do them? And you had such a meaningful impact on me when you came, we asked you to come and give a presentation to all of our advisors on appreciative advising. And we were, 
I had the opportunity to pick you up from the airport and we were talking about some of these challenges and you had just, you shifted my thinking in such a meaningful way. I think I would have probably, if I would have continued the way I was going, I probably would have had to quit my job. I would have not been effective. (laughs) I wouldn't have been making friends. I would have had to go somewhere far away and start over where no one knew me. I feel sometimes (laughs) somewhere else where no one actually knows me in order for me to be effective. But your, um, Mentorship has been really important to me. So thank you to that. And then I guess just thank you to Matt and to this Adventures in Advising community. I'm utilizing these resources for advisor development and training. So thank you for all the voices that we've, to Matt, for bringing in all of these voices and for everyone that's contributed and those that will contribute. You're having a big impact um, on all of us in our community. Well, thank you, Michael, for sharing your wisdom with us today. You always light up every room you walk into, and I sure am grateful for the day that you walked into my life. Um, Thank you for all that you are doing to support your students and your advisors. And on a personal level, thank you for being a, a, a friend and someone who I really admire. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you to ask a follow-up question or just to connect with you, how would you uh, invite people to, to contact you? I'm on LinkedIn, um, and my name is Michael Bjorkia. I'll just spell it M-Y-K-E-L-B-E-O-R-C-H-I-A. And then my email address is my first and last name at usu.edu, and I'll spell that again, M-Y-K-E-L dot Bjorkia, B-E-O-R-C-H-I-A at usu.edu. Thank you so much, Michael. Matt, I hand the golden microphone back to you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to serve as a guest host. Awesome interview. Thank you, Michael, for taking part and giving such great advice. And thank you, Jenny, for guest hosting. Loved it and can't wait to see you both in October. Now let's get to our next interview with Dr. Sean Ryan. Let's welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sean Ryan. Sean leads orientation and new student programs and joined the Chico State community in fall 2019, a few months before the start of the pandemic. Prior to his arrival in Chico, he oversaw orientation for seven years at Sacramento State. He applies academic capital theory to the student transition, which concentrates on identifying and easing concerns about costs, expanding students' networks, bridging trust between the student and university, providing timely information and enhancing each student's academic capital. He recently received his doctorate of education from Arizona State University with a concentration in leadership and innovation. An interesting fact about Sean is he is one of the few people that served four years on active duty military and two years in the United States Peace Corps. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. Yes. And, you know, we were talking before we recorded that, you know, we're you know chatting about how we got to chat at the last region conference and kind of got to know each other there. I uh, found out that you also listen to the podcast and are a fan of the podcast and actually have some connections some, to some of our previous guests as well, which I think we'll we'll jump into some of those questions later on. But, yeah, definitely glad for you to be here. So let's start out with our first question. You know, what was your path, your journey into higher ed? Yeah, absolutely. My um, <clears throat> so my my path my journey to higher ed. My first introduction to higher education lasted ninety minutes. 
I just lasted 90 minutes and then I was gone. So I was, um, I was born and raised in Boston, rarely left the city. I used to have an accent. My family still does, but I lost my accent because I've been gone for so long. But uh, when I graduated from high school, I, I applied to one university. It was the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And two weeks after um, high school was my first time on the college campus. So I know a lot of students now come to our college campus and visit. I never did any of that in, in, in high school or middle school. I never visited any colleges. I think it's great, but I just never did that. So my first introduction, I was by myself, went to the campus. Um, it was before orientation and I was walking around and some of you, you know, listeners might be thinking about uh, the first time you were on a college campus and you're walking around and you see the buildings and I saw the students eat, eating lunch. And I was like, that's so cool. Like you can just eat lunch when, when you want, you don't have to like the set time, you know, the sense of emerging adulthood. And it was really, really exciting. But then this next thought came up was how am I going to afford this? How can I afford college? And not knowing that there were people that could help answer that question for me, I pondered it for about another 45 minutes walking across campus, hopped back on the subway, went home, was still thinking about it and went to the resource that I knew that could help help me afford college. And that was the military. And so it was the first call that I made when I got back home was the Air Force. I was thinking about joining the Air Force Reserves and I did. And I and I uh, called up next day. I met with the, my recruiter and um I signed active duty Air Force, and I have not returned to that university since. I've never been back. And um, so, so joined. I, I four years. I served in the, in the military. Um, I, I was a. I, I flew on the back of an aircraft. I was a radar uh, technician, uh, surveillance, uh, surveillance technician on an AWACS aircraft. It looks like a little as a frisbee on top. But um, was in the military four years. But it was the first thing once I got to higher education. Um, I really started thinking about why did why did I feel comfortable that I could you know fly across the country, be trained to fly on a three hundred and fifty million dollar aircraft, but I couldn't I couldn't pass comp two. I couldn't enter that building, and so that was one of the first of many thoughts that I had of what are we doing? Can we do better, especially with students and transition? Like why did I feel so much more comfortable going into the military when? I could have went into college. And so that's one, that's part of the focus of my research that I've been doing. But um, uh, that was my first uh, central introduction. Um, got out of the military. I went to Oklahoma State University, uh, spent four years there and uh, became an RA, really took advantage of a lot of the opportunities, got heavily involved, graduated with my bachelor's degree in secondary education, wanted to be a teacher. So I taught overseas in the, the Republic of Moldova. Uh, which is right just uh, south of Ukraine, right next to Romania. I uh, lived in a small village there for two years. No one spoke English, so I had to learn Romanian. And um, it, it was actually there in a small village of Romania uh, or Moldova that I said I had a lot of time on my hands. And I was thinking about, hey, I remember I, I used to meet with someone that helped plan my classes out. I think you can actually do that as a profession. That never crossed my mind before. And I go, I, I think that person like – had a house or something and they had a family and they could work there. So it, it was literally in the villa in the, in the hills of Moldova when I thought about um, higher education as a profession. Uh, but I, I came back to the U S after the Peace Corps. Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where to start. And so I went back, went back to Boston. I managed to Avis rent a car in South Boston for about a year and then got in touch with um, some folks. And they said, 
hey, uh, if you're thinking about academic advising, which is a great profession, there's this thing called National Academic Advising Association out of Kansas State. And so I looked it up and um, went to Kansas State, did my master's there, met my wife. Um, she was pursuing her doctoral degree in uh, California. So we, we, that's kind of made us over here to California. Um, and um, she became a therapist for a while. And um, she would come home every day and I would talk to her about how much I loved working in higher education. And then she just she switched her uh, profession and she's been an academic advisor for about uh, eight, eight years or so. So we both work. We both worked at Sacramento State together, and then we both work at uh, Chico State together. So sorry, long intro, but um, had a kind of a long journey to get to this point. Yeah, no, don't be sorry. I mean, that, that's <laughs> I think a fascinating story and a lot to unpackage there too. Um, yeah, I mean, so much more that uh, you explained on here than when we had chatted a few months ago. So I'm <laughs> thrilled to to hear that story. Uh, and yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think a lot of people will agree that. You know, we didn't really think about, oh, maybe I could be an academic advisor. You know, I think of when, when I was a student, you know, I had a, I had a, a, a community college counselor when I was at the community college. I had um, a major advisor when I was at the four-year, also an EOP counselor. And I didn't put two and two together, you know, even after I graduated. Like, that could be something that I might be interested in. And then now I'm doing it for quite a few years now. Um, what made you choose uh, Oklahoma State when, when you got uh, out of the military? Oh, good question. So my final, um, my final duty station, I deployed uh, four times when I was in the military. So I spent a lot of time overseas, but uh, my, my final duty station was in Oklahoma City. And so I thought about going back, but part of it is I had a bad experience at UMass Boston and um, just drove up to uh, Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and fell in love with the campus. And um, it was significantly cheaper and uh, just found a great connection there and said, you know, I want to make this my home for the next few years. And I did. And I loved every second of it there. It was a great school. Yeah. And I, now I want to see if your RA experience is similar to a lot of other people that have been on the podcast that have been an RA. What was yours like? Mine my, my wasn't bad. Um, it, 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 yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, it probably could have been a lot worse. I know that I've, I've had some friends that have some um, struggles, but I thought it was a great introduction. If I didn't have that, that, that seed would have even been planted that you could make this a profession. So I was still trying to connect the dots that, oh, there's, there's other than students, there's professionals that do some things here. But I think overall, um, it, it was, it was a great introduction to the field and it still helps inform my practice of understanding that, you know, what happens outside of when we see students and, and, and what are the typical interactions like, um, still have a lot of great friends. I met the the best man at my wedding. I met through being an RA and through some of the campus clubs and organizations. So um, it was, it, it was a good introduction to the field. Nice. Yes. A lot of connections yeah. there. And, and yeah, yeah, no, that, I think that's a very similar to a lot of other guests where, you know, they enjoyed aspects of working in housing and working in residential life, being an RA, um, they don't miss the hours and being on yes. call 24 seven, but a lot of them basically said what you said is like, they kind of got that introduction into like higher ed advising and also the engagement piece that comes outside of um, any of the um, advising part portions of it. So they feel like that has benefited them in their current roles um, in academic advising. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, in your bio, you were mentioning that, um, you're one of few people that have served uh, in activity military, but also um, in the Peace Corps. Um, is that usually un is that unusual? It's it's pretty unusual. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there, there are other people, um, but it, 
they're just they're I mean, the, the populations that join the military typically don't join the Peace Corps. I'm just one of the people that did both. And so, um, yeah, there's not a, there's not a lot. I mean, there I've ran into a few people that have, have done both, but um, not a lot. Okay. You know. So usually been like one or the other. <laughs> yes, exa- exactly. Yeah. Now, when we were chatting a few months ago at one of the region conferences, um, you know, and you're mentioning um, in your in your path in advising, uh, being at Sac State, uh, you also know uh, Jazzy Magonzo Murphy, who was a previous guest on this podcast. Uh, did you meet Jazzy uh, at Sac State? I did. Yeah. yeah, when I when I joined Sac State, Jazzy was. Um, she wasn't yet the director. She was actually a couple of years out from the director of advising. I think she was still working financial aid at that time. Um, and I remember the first time I met her, my, my supervisor at the time said, you know, here's Jazzy. And then once Jazzy left, she said, she's going to go really far. And so, and, and she was right, of course. And, I, and so I was witness to see Jazzy when she was, um, you know, the, the probably an admission, a financial aid counselor. Um, and then to see her blossom to become associate director of advising. Um, I, I remember explaining to her uh, what KS, uh, KSU stood for at the end of the, um, it was an Akata address. And I said, oh yeah, that's Kansas State. Um, so so her and I got to know at the beginning of her, her advising career and her and I worked, she was director for probably about five years together while I was still working at orientation at Sac State. It was a pleasure to work with Jazzy. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Always great hearing stories about, about Jazzy. Yeah, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so now you're at uh, Chico State. How would you describe, because um, we've had various guests from other CSUs, how would you describe uh, Cal State Chico? Yeah, um, Chico State's a great place. It's a, it's a beautiful um, area, uh, about an hour and a half north of Sacramento. Uh, population is about 15,000 students on campus. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic because it's a highly residential campus where um, most students, if they don't live on campus, they live within eh, about a mile, mile and a half of campus. Um, significant population that's from outside of our service area. So um, a lot of students are coming from L.A., San Diego, um, the Bay Area, so it, it's a re- and it's 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 a good mix. It's about twenty five percent from the Bay Area, twenty five percent from LA, twenty five percent Central California, twenty five percent from uh, from Northern California. It's really a, a great, a very strong, caring, invested community with the staff. Um, I, I think I've been part of a community that has been this invested, this caring um, of the full campus community. So it's a great place, great place to work at. Yeah, because I know like for CSUSB, like our main population is from our like the Inland Empire. So from Mm. our general area. So uh, it's nice to hear like yeah, that you kind of have a a really good mix from all around. Mm -hmm. And then with uh, your role um, at Chico State, what does that entail? Yeah, so I oversee the orientation and new student programs portion of the of the position. So um, I oversee orientation. So we have a model where we have about 25 orientation sessions throughout the summer. We have about five or six in the winter. So I oversee those, but also uh, transition programming. So um, supporting students before they get to orientation, even right after. So we have some mentoring, um, some interventions that we have before orientation, post-orientation. Um, and yeah, been here for about three years. Work very closely with our, our advising counterparts. When I'm planning orientation, the first the first folks that I call are my advising colleagues, and I'm saying, 
hey, can, can I get the Calvary here for these days? And can you support? And that's how I build the days because students register for orientation. Um, my orientation leaders, they take a class and they introduce general education, graduation requirements to the new students. Um, they're on the front lines helping support our academic advisors during registration. So it's a very academic advising registration focus during the orientation program. Yeah, so yeah. definitely a lot of partnerships uh, yes. in orientation. Absolutely. And then also in your bio, you mentioned uh, about academic capital theory. So for those that may not know much about that or never heard that term, how would you describe that? And why is that important with, uh, with student transition? Yeah, it's it's a it's a more modern t- um, theory. It's not it's not significantly um, older. Th- there's some theories that I learned during my, my master's program that were very uh, much applicable, but sometimes they couldn't be applied. I felt especially to our current student population. And so this is a, a theory that's um, devoted for students that are specifically in transition. Um, and it's really from a lens of uh, low income, first generation and providing um, needed support. So it, it focuses on um, providing timely information, building trust, um, encouragement, um, relationships, um, bringing the family into the, the full transition. So educating not only the student, but the family. Um, it's expanding their network. Um, so, so coming on, you know, helping to use the the capital that our like our, our, ori- our peer orientation leaders have so much, you know, knowledge and information. And so I deploy them to share their their capital and their 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 network that can help expand the network of the new students coming in. So, you know, great example of you know student coming in and going, hey, I, you know, I'm 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 interested in X club. And the leader saying, oh, I, I know someone I can get you connected and helping, again, expand their network. That's a big thing. Um, it's, it's focused on reassurance, easing concerns um, during the transition. Um, and it, it also looks at, you know, what are some systemic barriers that, that exist and, and, and really trying to um, examining those. And, and so one of the things that is, is great is that um, – it looks at, you know, trying to put the mirror on on ourselves and going, are we sometimes the problem? Are we sometimes um, complicit in, in some of these challenges that students face? And, and maybe some things are well-intentioned, but did we create some of the, these barriers and how do we remove those? So it's, I think it's all those factors coming together. Um, and I use that actually with my dissertation. We paired um, uh, student orientation leaders as mentors, um, applying academic capital theory, um, you know, really that focused on, you know, timely information, um, encouragement, uh, reassurance, easing concerns, understanding what those concerns are, understanding who the student is, so you could expand their network throughout the transition. So it, it's a great theory. I found it very applicable, and I felt, felt it was very um, applicable to our current student population. Oh, absolutely. And and I like that it also like it's not just solely focused on student, but also the family as well, because they're mm-hmm. going to play an important part uh, with that transition as well. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about systemic barriers. And I would imagine a lot of that maybe showed up a lot. Or, I mean, it's a lot has been there, but to see it more uh, when we had to go into a virtual environment as well, you know, yeah. and, you know, you, in your bios, chat, you know, uh, showing that, you know, you started at Chico State, you know, a few months before the pandemic uh, yeah. started. So, you know, I'm sure you had certain goals that you wanted to get done or or mm. thought it was going to happen when orientation came around that, 
you know, took a whole 180. Uh, yeah. So what was planning like a couple years ago when you had to move to a virtual environment uh, for orientation? Oh, God, you know, I'm, I'm having some flashbacks yeah. about that. <laughs> God, that was rough of going, what are we going to do? How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to make this happen? Um, and I, I was new to the role coming in. So it was tough because I didn't have some relationships. There was, there was folks that I haven't even met key partners. And I'm like, I, I'm going to need your help to do this and pull this off. But it, you know, it's just like anything when, when you get together and, you know, I had some really quality orientation, you know, staff and I had some orientation leaders and we just came together and, and they were coming up with some great ideas of what we could do, but it, it was a challenge. But, it, you know, when I reflect upon it, going into it, um, you know, we made it happen. We did it. And I feel like every year we've made our virtual program even better. And so um, one of the things I realized once I arrived at, at Chico State, our, our, our onboarding program um, was not that was, was very had, had a significant amount of in, uh, inequity from an access standpoint. So as I mentioned before, we have a lot of students coming from L.A. Bay Area, which is you know four or five hours away. So our orientation program was structured is that we wanted to get as many students on campus as possible. And we didn't have a viable virtual program. So if students didn't attend orientation in person, it wasn't required to attend orientation. They would essentially go to the back of the line and register with limited support. We'd say, hey, go, here's a number, call an academic advisor and they'll help you out. Mm-hmm. That That's not orientation. And so um, having this, you know, having COVID come in, it, it really forced us as a university, which we would have done anyway, but it really forced us. It really accelerated us to um, make those changes to allow, have a viable virtual programming. So this year, when we we're kind of starting to come out of the pandemic, we were offering an in-person option, but also a virtual option. We weren't going to go back to what we had prior. Um, you know, I was, I was just reading this, this great book and they were talking about with the pandemic and um, a lot of folks kind of, thought the pandemic was almost like a hurricane going through and saying, okay, there's some destruction. Let's rebuild like we, we had before. And we're not, at least at Chico State, we're not going back to what we had before because there was a lot of inequity of folks that couldn't attend. So now we're offering both, you know, the in-person option for folks that uh, want to do that, but also a viable, in-depth, uh, virtual option to support students that potentially can't fly up for one day for orientation and can still get support during the transition. Yeah. And so you're mentioning, you know, kind of like, yeah, we can't necessarily go back to how things were. Um, And, you know, you're offering now both the in-person and virtual options. Um, Any other lessons learned from having the the virtual environment for those couple years uh, or the pros and cons? Yeah. So one of the things that we've we've noticed that that was virtual is that, you know, during when we had in-person orientation, we wanted to have at least the way they were structured. I would have loved to have some time individually with my orientation leaders with the students, but it was tough because they'd be in groups of like 10 to 15. And it was tough for an orientation leader to pull one person, you know, kind of away and have 14 other people. And what what do they do and who are they with? And so, but it was much easier to do that in a virtual space. So we created some time after talking about, you know, information, it was a lot easier. We had, we had assigned appointments of 15 minutes with each of our orientation leaders that they could talk with about classes, about transition, about just general questions. And that wasn't something, it's something we could do in person, but it was much more challenging if we did. So that, that was one of the big lesson learns that even though virtual was not the same as in person, it did afford us more, some opportunities to have some, 
quality time one-on-one and even during registration, students register at, at our orientation program. And um, for, for folks that have been in a, a registration lab, when you have you know, 40, 50 people in the lab, all raising their hands saying, hey, I need help, I need questions. In the virtual space, it was nice because we could take folks back. I felt, you know, there was some nervousness of students. I want to get classes, but there was a, a lot more time I felt where I didn't think the anxiety was as high. It was there, but not as present of just going, okay, you're going to work with me. And I don't see a student right next to the left of me or the right with me. Again, were there, were there technology challenges? Did sometimes, you know, you know, internet crash and we had to use the phone? Um we had a student that was in France this a uh, few weeks ago, and uh, so we couldn't call her on the phone. And she had unstable internet, so we couldn't use the Wi-Fi. So we had to use a Google Drive to communicate with her. So we made things work, yep. but it was so. I, I think that's one of the things is like you, you know the, they had all these things thrown at us, and we made it work. We figured out how to do it, um, but also to allow that those fifteen minute appointments was something that was a challenge in person. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you adapted. I mean, who would have thought two years ago, or you know, more than that, prior to the pandemic, that you'd be using a Google Doc and you know to yeah. communicate? And now it's like, well, that could be something that can be done. Mm-hmm. And you know, so even though like you still have like the uh, virtual option um, as as well as the in person one, what was the process like going back to an in person orientation? You know, did anything with being virtual have any impact on how you went about coordinating orientation uh, like since last year and this year? Yeah. So when, when we, that's a great question. So when we, when we did, and so part of this, this was my first orientation in person. I, I'd been through multiple years at Sac State, but you know, Chico State, I, I'd been here for almost three years and I'd never done an in-person orientation because um, it was all, all virtual. So Coming back, we realized that we need to have both options. Um, that we, I think we enhanced the the overall. We had some time. We enhanced the overall in person session. We allowed more more time. Um, we realized that you know were there some things that we could that we could upload in the front end. So we have a most schools have a pre orientation program. So we really focused on that and said, what can we put there so we can really leverage that time that students are here. So can we have less presentations and more conversations um those presentation piece can we can we put some of that a little bit in the front end and then follow that almost like a flip model so that's not something that we had as much prior to the pandemic so we were trying to put a little more content like here's a video how to register for your classes become familiar with that before because we knew the the cognitive load of what students have and what they can intake at a one day of orientation there's only so much we can do we can't just say you know the old model was Sit there, please retain as much as you can. Let's hope to God you you remember this stuff when it comes to registration time. Mm-hmm. And we realized, you know, can, can we revisit that? So, you know, we, we made more videos, um, had them do it beforehand, and to allow have more conversation piece during the in person session. Um, during the in person session, we we had we uh, prioritized connection over content. So we're like, let's do connection first, then content. Before, I think it was the opposite, and so. That really, those leveraging, I can think the full transition period as opposed to the one orientation day was one of the biggest lessons learned. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're talking about like a flip model. And I can imagine if uh, if ever George Steele or JP Vicencio or Rachel Mars hears this, they're so big on flipped advising and the flip model. So hearing about like, yeah, that here's some videos to watch. Here's some things to do ahead of time. Because, yeah, I mean, when 
you know, helping out with orientations, you know, over the last few years, it's something where there's so much information that's given to these students. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's almost like it's here's all this info that's dumped on them. And hopefully you remember some of it, um, yes. you know, and then, you know, when we meet with them a few months later, when it's time to register for the, the next term, you know, some some of them may not remember in a lot of yeah. it. And you know, especially when we're like, okay, did you already look at this? Or do you know how to do this? And it's like, no, or I remember hearing that term, but I don't remember what it is. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, awesome. with that in mind, I mean, you know, kind of goes into advising, you know, there's this changing landscape, you know, orientation has changed, advising has certainly changed. Yeah. Um, higher ed has has changed completely in a lot of sense. How does academic advising play a role now uh, with orientation with this changing landscape? Well, I think um, just to provide a little bit, at least at Chico State, about what, some of the things that we've done and, and how we've changed some things. Because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of changes and I mean, things that we do now that five years ago weren't even on our radar. So one of the things that, that my research has been on and I've really focused on I'll talk a little bit about enrollment management, but it will relate to academic advising, I promise. Um, So when when students apply to the university, typically the transition is they apply, they're admitted, they usually confirm their enrollment and say, I want to go to the school. They attend orientation, maybe they register, show up at the first day, and then then they're at census. That's kind of the general transition. So one, one of the things that I've been fascinated with is what happens to the student if once they confirm their intention to enroll and then six months later, kind of like me, they're not enrolled at my institution, but they're not enrolled anywhere. What happened? And so I think about this, the student that did everything right in high school, went through all the hoops, um, even applied to university, was admitted, said, yes, I want to go there. And then they apply and six months down the road, they're not, they're not there. And so I've tried to answer that question going, what happened? What happened during that transition? And so what we looked at is about 16% of our students confirm their intention to enroll and, and are not present. And so we dug a little deeper and we realized about half of those students aren't enrolled anywhere, that didn't go to any institution. It's, it's even higher at community colleges. And so what we've done the past few years is really called those students and said, what happened? And we've identified about half of those students, they're heartbreaking stories, stories of students said, I want to go to orientation. I got a flat and it was required and I thought I couldn't go. So that's why I didn't go to college. Or I, um, I, I got selected for financial aid verification and I live with my grandparents. You know, one of my parents passed away. The other one I haven't seen in a few years. I didn't have that information. I thought I couldn't go to college. Or I called housing and I said, I heard there's a $250 deposit for housing. Um, is that true? And the student that answered the phone on the other end said, yes, there's a deposit. And they go, okay. They hang up and said, I don't have $250. I couldn't go to college. So we learned a lot of those. And we said, what can we do to support students earlier in transition? So um, some folks call that summer melt. I think that's too broad of a term. We've identified a new world. We, we call it opportunity melt because mm-hmm. it's really focusing on the opportunity gap of students coming in, you know, the, the inequity, uh, inequitable distribution of resources on the front end. And how can we, you know, employ academic capital, everything we had to, to support students earlier in the transition. And that's become one of my focus is that I, I, I'm a, I consider myself like an assist person. I used to love John Stockton. I don't know if you like basketball at all, but he would be kind of the assist person to call him alone. I loved it. And that's how I consider almost how I am is going, how can I 
be the assist person for academic advisors? How can I get students that want to come to our college there? And this isn't talking like sales techniques. I worked at, again, a rent-a-car agency. I, I only worked there for a year because I wasn't a great salesperson. I'm not trying to talk people in. I'm trying to get people form connections earlier and often. So one of the things that we've done is that helps with advising is Right when students confirm their intention to enroll, we're, we're trying to build those relationships as much as possible, connect with them. What questions do they have? So that was our initial kind of thought about deploying our, our staff. And then um, we realized there was this great opportunity before orientation that we could collect information from students. So um, we're trying to collect as much information about them, you know, advanced placement coursework, concerns, uh, transferable credit, um, what their future ambitions are, are, are the career aligning with their major, getting general information. Um, and my orientation leaders are gathering that information. We're sharing it with our professional advisors that they just don't have the time to do that. So my leaders are making, you know, trying to triage some things, call students multiple times before orientation, and we upload that information to a database where our, our professional advisors can use that information because they shouldn't be, be introduced to the student right when they meet them at orientation. They should know them beforehand. So we're trying to facilitate that to get, get students to orientation, but also to make sure our advisors are prepared to have much more in-depth conversations. Sorry, that was a long, yeah. long spiel, but that's kind of what we're doing, a big piece about what we're doing. No, I, I love that. I mean, it's it it's like a, a coordinated care network in a sense, mm -hmm. you know, um, when you're, you're talking about like some of these students, you know, ask about a housing deposit and they're like, oh, well, OK, thanks. Now I'm not going to go to that school or yeah. I, you know, I got a flat. I didn't think I could go, you know, to another one because I missed my orientation. And a lot of times it's, you know, just not asking that question or sometimes they don't even know what question to ask. Yes. Um, you know, and I just think, you know, let's say with a continuing student, let's say on my end, where they something happened during halfway through the semester, they talked to their professor to see if they can get a withdrawal, that particular deadline passed, and the professor says, sorry, I can't help you. But not knowing that there might be a different withdrawal a student could then submit. Uh, like, for example, we have an extenuating circumstances withdrawal, but it's, the information's there, but not necessarily there, you know, or easy for a student to know or understand that there's there's so many other avenues. And, and a lot of times it's just asking someone that hopefully might know this, the situation to be able to better assist that student. But I think, you know, having a lot of the orientation leaders, peers, you know, co contacting students, gathering that information and having a place where they can upload that for others to see will just help with the connections with that student. So at least if they do meet with, let's say, an advisor, they might be able to follow up and say, oh, I saw that you talked to so-and-so and it looks like you had a question about this. Did you get that answered? Or maybe we can follow up on that. That's exactly right. And, it, and it's it's changing the model both for advising, but also for, for orientation. And I stole this from um, Georgia State uses this kind of model where, you know, the old model was we, we expected students to self-diagnose what their issue was, to understand this is my problem, and then navigate the bureaucracy to get to us. So first, we're like, you got to figure out your own problems, you figure it out, navigate the way here, and then we'll help you. So at orientation, it was, we'll send you an email. And if you, if you don't come to orientation, well, you probably didn't want to come here. And that was not accurate. That wasn't right. Yeah. So now we know we have data. For example, we know that 
on campus is one factor is if a student applies uh, some schools and they apply to get on campus housing and they, maybe they can't get it. That, that's a, that should be a red flag that deploying, you know, peer advisors to give them a call and saying, or financial verification. We know that. Um, Or when our student fills out our survey, we notice if a student says that, you know, they feel um, on a scale of one to five, um, a three or below, confident in the transition. We give them a call because we've realized that's a factor that they might be uh, you know, more susceptible for attrition or um, you know, there's a variety of different factors that we use and we have the data mm-hmm. and you applying that data and saying, let's use this earlier, sometimes even before the students recognize, you know, what, what 17, 18 year old students know how to navigate a lease off campus. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if they don't get on campus, let, let's, let's connect with them earlier to support them and let them know what network exists, what support exists, and how to go through that. So if we know this information, I think that's one of the biggest changes is using that data and being proactive with it earlier. And again, from my mindset is, is helping the students, supporting the students, and then to help get them get them in front of our academic, a wonderful academic advising team. Yeah, and you're talking about like, yeah, what 17, 18-year-old knows at least. <laughs> when I was on campus, so I was part of a middle college program. So I went to the community college uh, my last two years of high school and then, you know, then went mm. to the four-year institution. And so my first year I lived in the dorms and then um, I ended up assigning a lease on campus for summer housing. And then a couple of weeks later realized that it was a little bit cheaper off campus and then ended up signing a lease for off campus. And then when I was tried, I thought I was like, Oh, I'll just tell the on-campus housing that I'm not going to live there. And they're like, no, you signed this. Like, this is how much you're going to have to pay. <laughs> I was like, no, now I got two leases. What am I supposed to do? So ended up having the, uh, luckily, I, I was a student assistant in the admissions office. And then they knew someone in housing and they were able to take care of it. You know, probably was supposed to happen, but it, they made it work. And I'm so grateful for that. But I mean, yes, I had the contract, but. I didn't read through everything. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing, but yeah. luckily got got help. <laughs> wow! Yeah, those are the those are the things. And it's amazing about how many students don't find that help or don't ask it or don't think that it exists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it wasn't. And even though I worked in admissions as a student assistant, I didn't think to ask like my boss or t- one of the directors or something. I just happened to ask one of my uh, st- uh, the other students, uh, one of the tour guides. He said well, how about you ask so-and-so and then they might be able to help because they just happen to know that they knew someone in housing. And it, it yeah, luckily it worked out. I didn't know what I would have done. Well, well that's one of the benefit of working on campus of having connections, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell a lot of students if they end up getting work, so I'm like, yes, find a job on campus. You know, you don't need to go travel anywhere. You're already on the campus, mm-hmm. but you get to make a lot of connections as Absolutely. well. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then um, now that orientation is is over or almost over, what's next now uh, for student programs? Yeah, so one of the things we're this is one, one of my favorite parts. We're going to a deep data dive on on what worked, what didn't, what can we do better. Um, we're also looking at there's winter orientation, so that's one of the things that has also changed. Historically, we focused primarily on students in summer. Now, well, if you students that are starting in the spring, they should have the same experience as a student coming in the summer. And so, um, so we're, we're, we're planning that, um, we're going on feedback sessions. So meeting with a lot of folks, uh, one of the data points we just looked at is 
we had students that were virtual and in person. The students that were in virtual were uh, 10 percentage points more likely to be Pell eligible. So which kind of makes sense. But so now we're examining, do we need to have more support for students that are doing virtual? And, and what does that look like? And how can we do that? So it's really, I think, taking a step back, examining things. Um, recruit. We're beginning recruiting for a new team. Um, this is also one of the weeks next week is when we start, um, school and we're really excited because this is when everyone else is freaking out and going, Oh my God, what do I do? And you go, yeah, that's what we were doing the last few months. Um, so now we can support them. We can come in and, you know, tabling and helping support. So it's one of my favorite weeks of folks coming back. So I think it's helping the campus community, but also planning for the future. It's exciting time for us. Yeah. Any initial thoughts right now for like the the next orientation, like for for the students coming in for spring, like do you think you'll offer both the virtual and in person, or just one? No, we'll continue offering both modalities yeah. for students. And then, um, as you start winding down on this interview, um, you know, you talked a little bit about your uh, dissertation. Uh, what made you choose um, specifically doing the Doctor of Education at Arizona State University? Yeah, so um, I, well, I was. Um, I was on vacation. I usually go on vacation around, you know, mid-August once orientation's over. And I, my wife would see me and she'd always see me re- reading higher education books. So, um, and, and plug for, for a book, I just read The Great Upheaval, which is a great book if folks are thinking about changes within higher education and what, what that's going to look like. That's a great book that recently came out. So I saw that and she said, you're reading books, all these books on higher education on, on vacation think about doing a doctorate. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't even know what that entails. And so the more I thought about it, I, I initially said, I just want to become more educated in the field. And I looked and um, Arizona State was a, was a was most innovative school, multiple years in a row. Um, I listened to their president, Michael Crow, and he was a phenomenal speaker. And I said, this is something that I want to be a part of. So I looked in the program, contacted a few people. Um, it was fully online. So from start to finish, it was online. I got to have a cohort that was around the world. I literally had people from other countries in my cohort. Um, this was a great program. Um, completed. It was four years. It was a three-year program, but I had to take a year off when I transitioned to Chico State. But great uh, program. And it was really focused on the innovation piece and preparing. Because higher education, we're going to go through a lot of changes. They're, they're, they're coming. We're just on the cusp of some of these changes. And I think it really helped me prepare them, my mindset for those. Yeah. And I know when we were at the conference a few months or back in March, you were about like a week or so away from defending your dissertation. Um, how was yes. that? How was that process like? Um, stressful, stressful, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was stressful. It's almost like really stressful, but not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was both of those mm. together. Um, it, it was completed virtually. So I was in my office and, um, you know, you go through it and you just don't know what kind of questions that they're going to ask. And, you know, they, they answer the questions and you're also like, oh, okay, I know this. I know this. I've been studying this. I know this. Um, and then you end and it's just you and your office. And you're like, okay, like, am I a doctor now? What? It's just, it's, it's just, it's just strange. It's weird. But it was um, very fulfilling. I opened the door and my colleagues were all there and they're applauding. And I'm like, how did you know that I passed? And they're like, we just assumed that. And I'm like, okay, good. Cause it would have been really bad if I didn't. So, um, yeah, I, I had great colleagues that that, that surrounded me, but uh, yeah, it was it was a quite an experience. Oh, huge accomplishment! <laughs> so congratulations on that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know we were talking earlier about you knowing uh, Jazzy, but you also know uh, Charlie Nutt. Um, yeah, who recently retired um, at the end of June. 
but and a lot of people know Charlie, but you also know Charlie because you were also a former student of his. He was my very first master's class at Kansas State. And so I didn't know what I was walking into. And I walked into the room and I go, where do you go from there? I mean, for those folks that know, know uh, Dr. Nutt, he was the best professor I've ever had. I mean, he would be extreme. The, the challenge and support, that was him. I mean, he would walk in and he, he, he would take attendance by, you know, we'd have to read 120 pages or so a, re- a week about the history of higher education and he would read a paragraph and then he'd call our names out and he'd say, Sean, explain what that means. And you didn't know, you didn't know if you were going to get called next. So you're like, oh my God, oh my <laughs> God. And, you know, he, he's just a genius. He knows so much. And, um, you know, he would challenge you in a great way. You couldn't just throw something out there. Um, but, and then he would kind of wrap everything up at the end. It was, it was a phenomenal, it was almost like a, like a great Sunday sermon of just wrapping things up and, and what a communicator and someone with some foresight and knowledge. And, um, I mean, I felt so, so privileged to be in his classroom. And, you know, there's a couple other things that stood out for me. One of the things that he did, you know, I didn't know the stature of who he was really until I was six, seven, eight weeks into the, into the, uh, the, the class. One of the things I always appreciated was, at the end of the class, he would stand there and he would go around and he would talk to people that were picking up their bags. He'd, he'd pick about four or five people every class and he would ask, how was class today? What'd you think? Was it good? He, he was he was so modest of just going, what did you think? I mean, and, 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 and he just seemed, we were so nervous of him because he knew so much. But then he'd go in and be like, what, what can I do better? What is that, was that, did that resonate with you? And um, when I went to Sac State, um, we started an advising collaborative, actually Jazzy and I did, and I emailed him and I, I hadn't talked to him probably four or five years. And he responded right away and I said, would you like to be a part of this, to be a speaker? And he said, yes. And he came right away. He flew to Sacramento. Um, and I, I just never forgot that, that he didn't have to do any of that. He just went out of his way to come here um, because he just cared so much about the advising community. And what, what a great, what a great person overall. I can't yeah. think of any professor I've had that has ever asked any any of the students or yeah. asked me, how was class today? <laughs> how could I do better? Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's just a testament to who Charlie is and yeah, why a lot of people love him and why he's done so much with within advising and higher ed in general. So yeah, that uh, awesome story. But well, Sean, a- yeah. Oh, go yes. ahead. No, sorry. Can I can I just share one quick thing that, yeah. that Charlie used to say that I, that I yeah. really uh, he used to say many many things that I that I have notebooks that I've still kept for him. But one of the things I really appreciated when he was talking about changes with advising, um, I remember he he would talk about how advising has changed, but we've gone through changes before. And he would say before when when students used to register uh, for classes, they would have um, you know note cards, and you go there, and then became the invention of the telephone, like the telephone to register. And people said, um, and and that was basically, you know, press A for, um, you know, these majors, press B for this time. That's how you would register by a touchstone phone. And people initially said, you're no longer going to need advisors. They have a a phone now. You're not going to need them. Mm -hmm. And then when the internet came out again, oh, students can go on, they can look, they can find classes. And, And people said, the internet's there. The advising community, that's going to be gone because students can do that all themselves. And he say that clearly didn't happen. But now the relationships between advisor and student got even deeper. 
because they could do some of that those things beforehand um, and, and, and it allowed more time for the relationship to grow and develop um, when they were meeting. So it's just one of the many things they would talk about how we've been through this before and, and the, the relationships are only, only got deeper each time. Um, so not that change is going to happen, not that change will happen, but um, historically, every time it has, students take on some more, but the, the advising relationship has gotten deeper. It's something that's resonated with me. Oh, well, that is, yeah, that's a great story too. I mean, yeah, because yeah, as much as technology changes, it gets better mm-hmm. in some ways, maybe not mm-hmm. so much in others. It's something <laughs> where we're still here, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. every staff member, uh, higher ed professional advisor or whatnot. Yeah, maybe it does give us that more time with the students to talk about other things and some of these transactional pieces. So absolutely, yeah, definitely true story on that. But Sean, we've reached the end of the interview. I appreciate you being on this podcast. A lot of great information that that you've been able to share. A lot of great stories. So thank you so much for being on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean, for joining today. And it's great to know how much academic advising plays a part in orientation and also the partnerships that are forged. A lot of great tidbits that you shared today. And this episode is now complete. If you don't already, subscribe to this podcast on any podcast platform and give us a follow on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look out for episode 67. Take care and keep advising. Oh.